Amen. So uh, we've been working on for the last few weeks um, this new series called the um, the Blueprint for the End Time Church. Uh, do you feel like you're in the end times? Yeah. Uh, you know, so so so. So uh, we are the End Time Church, and the blueprint for the for the End Time Church is ironically not too dissimilar from how the church all began in the first place. Uh, which is good to know. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at three things. Can you bring up the picture of the temple there, please, Serenity? It's under the communion thing, I think. And we've been looking at three kinds of... Yes, it is. <laughs> Just can't get the staff these days, can you? Uh, there it is, look. Did you get them up for me? Yeah, that's our building. Anyway, so, uh, so we're looking at temple-structured life. So... Uh, we're looking at the, the big tall bit in the middle there. That's the sanctuary of the Holy Temple. That's where all the business goes on. Uh, well, some of it. And so in there is the Holy Place and the Most Holy Place. Then further out, you can see where the offering of fire is being offered. And then you've got the outer court where you've got the ladies' court, the Gentiles' court, etc. Uh, and then around that, you've got the outer, outer court. And then in the distance, you can see the city. And so there's three areas of, of life that we as Christians need to be living in. The problem is, is we spend most of our lives in the outer court and in the city, but we don't actually spend a lot of our lives in the center bit, which is ironic, seen as we are a royal priesthood. That's what the Bible says. Um, so I'll just quickly go through, recap what we've looked at over the last few weeks. So we've got inner court life. Outer court life is really the communal function of the church. And then you've got the centrality of temple life. And this is how temple influences society. Society shouldn't influence the church. The church should influence society, right? Now, obviously, there's, there's a degree of cultural um, elements here because I'm just looking around here. You're all looking very trendy and modern, right? We don't walk around looking like Jesus. Otherwise, we'd be branded as a cult, yeah? Amen? I know some of you would like that, but we're not going to do that. Okay, so, so, we're, so our culture has affected us in that sense. Our music that we play is obviously of a style that's of the culture at the time. However, so that's fine. But when it's cultural values of the world trying to come in and alter our theology, well, that's a non-negotiable as far as I'm concerned. And so therefore, culture does not get to dictate our theology Rather, our culture, which is kingdom culture, should permeate out into the world. Yeah, we shouldn't be as the people of the world. People should look at us and know that we're of a kingdom that they're not, basically. Yeah, so uh, that in a nutshell. And then we looked at briefly, and sorry for those that have joined today and they're like, what is going on here? Uh, we looked at the Hebrew, the three Hebrew words that make up what was traditionally known as a synagogue, which is a Bet HaTafila, which is a house of prayer. Uh, a Bet HaKnesset, which is where you corporately gather together, and a Bet Midrash, which is a place of study. Amen. Um, and what else? And then to understand, our un to understand who we are as priests, we have to go back into the Old Testament. It says in Hebrews 10 verse 1 that the Torah is a shadow and type of the reality to come, but not the reality itself. But the thing is, how do you know what the reality is if you don't even know what the shadow is? Amen. So you do really need to know your Old Testament. You really do need to know this stuff. And so to understand who and what you are as priests means you really need to know things like everyone's favourite book, the book of Leviticus, which I think personally is one of my faves. I love it. I think it's a great book. Anyone else here like Leviticus? One, two, three. Actually, quite a few there. Well done. 
Good for you. Gold star. Come see me afterwards and I'll give you working little gold star. Put on your thumb. Uh, we also then looked at the functions of the Old Testament priests and sort of the things that they got up to. And that's kind of where I left it last week. So now we need to start looking at what do New Testament priests do, okay? And how do we live our lives? So let's uh, use this base text that we've used a few times. So if we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now remember, I normally preach, but I'm going to do, this is a teaching series. So it means you're going to have to use your Bible quite a lot, uh, which is good. And so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Tracy said I go through the scriptures too fast, so I shall slow down for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to look at verse 1 to 4 and then verse 11. So Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses, baptised into the cloud and baptised into the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. Now probably, probably some of you are probably thinking, where was that in my Old Testament? I have to read it carefully. And then down to verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example that, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Okay, so do you feel like you're in the end of the ages? Okay, so this is, Paul is saying categorically here, hey guys, you really need to know those old Bible stories, that Old Testament stuff, because they were written as examples so that you would know how to live your life in the New Testament. Because upon us has come the end of the ages. Amen. Now, the Bible's quite loose with the term end of the ages. Basically, from the time of Christ till his return is technically the end of the ages, according to the Bible. Um, nevertheless, we are here. We are the church. We're in the end of the ages. So if you find your, te- your Old Testament a bit boring, I, d- I don't know how people can find their Old Testament a bit boring. I mean, it's full of some great stories. It's a bit scary sometimes, but it's good to have a bit of the fear of the Lord. Amen. So I would encourage you to read it. And... Uh, and really get to know it because that's what it's written for. It's written for us. It's written for us as a warning to us so that we live right and do the right kind of things. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. So uh, we had a brief look, didn't we, about how the Levitical priesthood came into being. So I showed from the scriptures how in the good old days it was the firstborn of every household that became the priest in the house. Uh, Then because of the golden calf incident where they all rebelled, Uh, It was only the sons of Levi that were zealous for God and didn't get involved. Therefore, God rewarded them with the priesthood until Jesus came along and how he's kind of reversed it all back again. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. So let's have a quick look at some more stuff here, because Jesus has come to give us a new covenant based on better promises. Now, I need to just say some stuff here about the term new covenant, because, again, this can cause some confusion. So in Jeremiah 31, I think 31, it talks about how God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, but not as, not as in the days previously, but a new one. Now, the Hebrew word there for new means new, but some would say that it means renewed. OK, now just bear with me here. OK, so it could potentially say a renewed covenant. But this is what we need to be mindful of, is that your Old Testament was also written in another language. Anyone like to shout out what language that might be? <coughs> Sorry? Pardon? Latin, yeah, Latin, before Latin? Yeah, after Hebrew. Aramaic, yeah, before Aramaic. Greek, that's right, yeah, we got there in the end, hallelujah. So, yeah, I said that. Greek, okay, so the Old Testament was written in Greek. Now, why is this important? For several things. Firstly, 
the scholars that wrote the, 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 the Old Testament, the Septuagint in Greek, was, it was written about 250 BC, and it was written for the Hellenistic Jews. Now, all of your New Testament quotations do not come from the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, not one single one of them. They all come from the Greek version only. Now, there's a reason for this, because the, the Greek Old Testament is more clearer on certain things where the Hebrew is a little bit more vague. And the reason why the Greek is so good is not because it's more superior, it's because the people who translated understood Hebrew really well and they're like, hey, we'll take all the hard work out of this for you and we'll just say what it means. So when it comes to the virgin birth, you know, behold, the virgin shall be with child, in the Greek, clear as day. In the Hebrew, it's really unambiguous. As is, what is it, a maiden, a virgin? We don't really know. So, but the Greek version tells you clearly that it is a virgin. This is quite useful because those Jewish scholars did all the hard work for us, so they put it into the Greek. Okay, so this is why it's important to know your Greek. And it's interesting then that only, all the New Testament quotes are only from the Greek. What's this got to do with new or renewed? Because in the Greek version of Jeremiah 31, it doesn't say the term renewed, but says new. Then when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus is at the table and, he's, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, again, the, the Greek word is brand spanking new, not a reworking of something that was, pre that was previous, even though the New Testament is still built on the foundations of that which went before. I need to caveat that because what we're going to look at now can, can be confusing. So let's turn now to a really important book, which is Hebrews chapter 8 because we need to now look at this new priesthood. Now I appreciate today it might be a little bit cerebral for you, but you've all got brains, right? I know you're charismatics, but I'm sure you've got brains. Amen? Oh. Hallelujah. All right, so if you've got your picture Bibles, it's uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And verses, well, I'm going to read all of it, 6 to 13. Um, it says, but now he, this is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will create a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the days when I took them by the hand, etc., etc. Let's move down forward now to verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And now, this is all important. Turn with me now to uh, Psalm 110. Because <coughs> now we need to look about this high priest. Who is the high priest? Now some of you might be thinking, Chris, why is this important? We don't really care. What has it got to do with anything? Because, brothers and sisters, you are priests. And it's good to actually know what that even means. And are you even operating in that which God has called you to be? Are you purposefully living your life as a priest every day, ministering to the things of God? And yes, sometimes we are, I think more by default than by design. And therefore, I want us to understand who and what we are in Christ, what he's done for us on the cross. And therefore, that we start to live our lives according to as he has set down in Scripture, which is not just about going into the world and telling everyone about Jesus, because we've got to do that. and We all know that. But first and foremost, we need to be priests unto our God. So uh, Psalm 110, verse 4. 
く。Okay, the Lord has sworn and will not change His might. In other words, this is eternally ratified. No one, nothing is going to change it. All right, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What Melchizedek? Who's that? What's that? Well, let's have a look. Just figure out who this guy is and and how it all relates to us. So, if we now turn to Genesis chapter fourteen, I love it. In the book of Hebrews, it says there's much we could say about Melchizedek, but then he barely says anything about it, which is really annoying.、Um, yeah. So, chapter fourteen, verses eighteen to twenty. Um, so basically, what's happened here? Back the backstory is there's been a big war in the plains of、uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe, and these kings have come out to war. Abraham has、uh, won a bit of a victory, and he's got his spoils for war. And、uh, then it says in verse 18, it says, "And Melchizedek." Now, Melchizedek isn't a name, by the way; it's a title. I'll explain that in a minute. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Hello. Right, and he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And Abraham gave him a tenth of all. Hallelujah. Okay, so now I've seen some Christians and people do some really peculiar things to this verse here. It's like, well, you know. Melchizedek. The fact that he was carrying bread and wine is just purely a giant coincidence, and it's like, no, it's so obvious, it's so clear. Anyway, so what does Melchizedek mean? It's a title. It's not a name. It comes from two Hebrew words. Forgive my、uh, spitting on you, but it comes from the first word is Melech, right, which means king. And Sadiq means righteousness, so it means he is the king of righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem. Salem is where the word Shalom comes from, and it means peace. It's also where the word Jerusalem comes from, the city of peace. So he is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. Who does that sound like? Jesus, but I tell you what, you'll get people go. No, 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 that's not what it's saying there. Oh, yes, it is. Okay. So now we go back to Hebrews chapter four and verses fourteen to sixteen.、It、says therefore. Since we have a great high priest, now again Hebrews has a lot to say that Jesus is Melchizedek, or he's of the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses. That's good to know, right? We all have our weaknesses. Amen. Yeah. Uh, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That means Jesus was tempted to have a grumpy day. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in help of time of need. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but without a high priest, your prayers don't get answered. It's as simple as that. Without a high priest, what you do as Christians will not work. You have to have a high priest. Now, what is a high priest? It means the the top dog, the chief priest, the highest of the highest, the boss. Yeah. 
It's not some kind of random title. It means the chief of priests. And he stands right between uh, you and God. Okay. Now, let's, let's carry on. So let's go, go to Hebrews 5 and verses 5 to 6. And it's requoting that Psalm 110. He said, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So Jesus is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you're the high priest of an order, do you ever, ever wondered what the word order means? What, what, he's a high priest of an order? What kind of order? What is an order? It's an order of priests. So he is your high priest, and you are all priests. Amen? But what I love is you're not just ordinary priests. You are royalty. Yeah. Hallelujah, right? So stop talking a bit like this, and maybe we should start talking a bit more like this. <laughs> because you're royalty. Act like it. Live like it. Know that you can go into the presence of God. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Amen. I love it. We are here gathered in the house of God and we have lifted up uh, our offerings of worship and praise. Blessed be his name. And I think it's sad today that many Christians, a lot of, and I've been guilty of this myself, is not really operating in the fullness of what God wants us to do. Do you know what? My life is so much more satisfying, not being stood up here shouting and ranting and raving, but spending time in the prayer room and fulfilling my calling as a Christian. My calling as a Christian. Yes, my secondary calling is to go into all the nations and all that sort of stuff. But my first and foremost calling is to be a man of prayer is to be a priest before my God. And therefore, my life is only, from, is only based in the second outer core, and that's my whole experience of my Christianity. You haven't lived. It's as simple as that. If you're not living in the inner courts, as in the inner, the sanctuary, you haven't lived. It's as simple as that. Now, do I get an amen from someone? Any, anybody? So some people here are like, yeah, man, I live in that inner sanctuary. I know what it's like. You will experience the presence of God. He will tell you things. He will reveal you things. He will let you know him in a way that you can't know him in the outer courts. Glory be to God. That to me is exciting. Because Jesus says in John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing the Father. This morning, I nearly cried when I heard of a local church. Instead of coming together to worship God, they decided to, hey, let's all get together and watch football instead. This is the house of the living God. And God wants his people to know that they are priests. If you want to watch football, go down the pub with your mates and do it. But when we are called to gather together as the ecclesia of God, we are here to worship. We are here to pray. And we're to congregate to receive study of the word of God before we go out into the world. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Now, some people are probably going to give me a hard time. Well, Chris, you just don't know. It's a great outreach tool. Rubbish! If you want to watch football, go and do it in the pub. But do not do it in the house of God. Oh, but Chris, God's not into buildings. We're the church. Well, speak to Jesus about that. Because God is in heaven. And do you know where he is in heaven? He's in a big temple 
which is a building. Go figure, right? And if it's good enough for God to be in a building and worship in heaven, then it's good enough for me, hallelujah, as a little itty-bitty priest on the earth. It makes me cross. It makes me sad. Because Christians don't get it. They don't see it. They don't know the signs of the times. They don't know what's going on in the world. They're completely asleep at the wheel. And it just makes me weep sometimes. Like, God, what is wrong with everybody? They all think I'm the crazy guy. I'm not crazy. They're crazy. (laughs) Hallelujah. Sorry. 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 I'm going to get some hate mail now today. I do get hate mail, will you please to know? Anyway, you'll sleep better at night knowing that. So something we need to know about Jesus as a, as a priest is that there are three components um, to the Old Testament priesthood. So you have a priest, you have an offering, and you have the offerer. Okay? The offerer is the person that's done something wrong that they shouldn't have done. The offering is a little animal that's poor, poor thing's going to have to have its throat slit because it's got to pay the price for your sin. And then you've got the priest that then mediates between you and God so satisfaction can be made. Well, Jesus was all three. He was the offerer. He was the offering and he is the priest. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember the time when Jesus was being baptised by John the Baptist? And John the Baptist is like, dude, you should be baptising me. He's not, not this way around. He's like, no, no, we must do all things to fulfil righteousness. Because Jesus was identifying with us. Because you see, when you, when, when you were as a sinner gave your animal, you placed your hands upon the animal and your sin was transferred onto the animal and the animal died where you should die. Amen. And so that's what's going on here. So Jesus identified with sinful humanity when he was on the cross. He literally became sin. So he is the offerer and he is the offering. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Are you talking about the Passover when they've done the blood on the door? Yeah, so Jesus being the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, yeah. Passover is really good because the Passover is really what I call the born again offering. So what that means is, what that means is, so you have other offerings like the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering. They come later and they don't come until after you're in a covenant relationship with God. But the Passover lamb had to be slain so that the angel of death could pass over so that the people who were stuck in the land of slavery could be taken out of the slavery and brought into a place of freedom and then God could present them with the law okay that's how it is supposed to be for us Jesus is our Passover lamb he has set us free from the bondage to sin and to slavery to Satan and brought us into his glorious kingdom and then when we come into his glorious kingdom then he goes on to say now sin no more and he leads us to the law of God amen Amen. that's why going out there and banging out with your placard banging about oh you you know this that the other and and just preaching law to them isn't going to work because that's not what Jesus did to you he, 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 you know, when that woman that was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus didn't go to her, man, you really blew it today because you know what the law says, right? You bust it big time. He said to her, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And then he goes on to say, now therefore go sin no more. So the love of God, it made her encounter Jesus, which then led her to the law of God. Don't introduce people to the law as that's what's going to get you saved because that's not what gets you saved. Yes, hallelujah. All right. Uh, So anyway, so Jesus is our priest. 
Uh, Jesus, as I said before, is of the order of the Melchizedek. It is far superior to the old Levitical system. Hebrews chapter 7, I recommend you read it, 1 to 22. And it talks about, because the reason why he's more superior is because, guess what? Melchizedek was before the tribe of Levi came about. Yeah. So when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, he, the guy who wrote Hebrews is this really difficult thing to say. But he was like, it was as though Levi tithed to Melchizedek because he was still in Abraham's loins and therefore he tithed as well. So great picture that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so Melchizedek is the, uh, the superior priesthood. And we are priests, not of the order of Levi, but we are priests of the order of Melchizedek. Hallelujah. Praise be to his name. All right. So some of our functions, and I'm going to cover over the next couple of weeks, really going into a lot of detail about what our spiritual sacrifice is. Name me a spiritual sacrifice that we could do. Praise. Praise, okay. A, a sacrifice of praise. We've all, we've all heard that. We lift up a sacrifice of praise. This is our understanding of what it means to offer up a sacrifice of praise. Oh, it's so hard. I just don't want to praise Jesus today. And it's just such a sacrifice for me to say anything nice to Jesus. That's what we think a sacrifice of praise is. No, what it literally means is you don't offer animals anymore. So you have to do something else in the place of an animal. And that's praise and worship. That's your sacrifice. Hallelujah. So whenever you're praising and worshipping the Lord, it's as though you've got a lamb and slit its throat and blood is spraying everywhere. And you've presented that to God. That's literally what it means. But if you don't understand you're a priest, that will make no sense to you. And we come up with these really outlandish ideas of, oh, it's just when it's really hard to praise God. Yes, I'm sure that is a sacrifice, but that's not what the author is intending you to understand. It is your spiritual offering. And when you begin to realise this, you then begin to realise actually the importance of corporately gathering together to worship God. You know, we live in a society that's very schismatic, very broken, and it's all about me, myself, and Jesus. Man, you've got to get out of that mindset. That is a worldly mindset. That is not biblical. You've been called into the body of Christ, which is his church. You've not been called to be a loner, all by yourself, doing everything by yourself. That's not what God's called you to do. Yes, there's a place where you pray and seek God for yourself. But then there's the place where we pray and we seek God corporately. There's a place where we worship God corporately. We come together to study the word corporately. But then we also go out and gather and do life together corporately as well. It's not just about me, myself and Jesus, because actually that isn't really a biblical understanding of who we are in Christ. Our identity is not found in me as an individual. My identity is found in the corporate understanding of who I am in Christ in his body. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. As priests, we offer up spiritual sacrifices daily through Christ. Spiritual sacrifices, as I said, they replace the material sacrifices of the old covenant and they're no longer priests of a separate class. All priests in the new covenant are living stones which come together to form the temple of God. I love that old saying when the individual says, I am the church, I am the church. No, you're not. You're a little brick rolling down the road saying you are a house, you are a house. You're not a house, you're a brick. You're a living stone that must come together to form the living house of God. Amen. So if you go around saying, I, I am the church, I am. no, you're not. Only Jesus can say I am the church because the church is the body of Christ. We are individual members of it. Brothers and sisters, isn't it glorious what God has given us? 
Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it just so wonderful? The privilege that we have to pray for our nation. Someone read it earlier on, 2 Chronicles 7. If my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and then I will heal their land. Hallelujah. If we want to see revival in our nation, I know some people are like, I don't believe in revival. I don't care if you believe it or not. If you pray for it, God will move. Hallelujah. If you pray, God will move. If you don't pray, God will not move. And I want to end with this final point, because I had someone write to me saying, you can't say things like that. That's not true. What about the man in white that appears in the Middle East and that's got nothing to do with Christians at all? Is absolutely wrong. Because I remember when I first got saved, when I was 17 and 18, I was in an Anglican church where I got saved. It was a great little church in his day. And I, I, I remember some big, loads of Christian organisations were telling Christians, you need to pray for the 1040 window. The 1040 window is a, is a geographical area of, of the world, which is the most hard to reach place on the world to preach the gospel, which is right in the heartbed of Islam. Okay. So for years and years and years, the church prayed into the 1040 window. And now guess what's happening? They're getting saved and the man of white is appearing. So you could say, oh, Chris, to say that if if we don't pray, God won't do anything. Actually, there's a lot more truth to it than you realise. Now, I know God is always doing stuff and he's always, you know, moving and moving and, and raising things up. But unless the church prays because he has limited himself to you guys and me because we're priests. And if we're not doing our job, then he can't do what he is supposed to be doing. He can't send out those angels. If it wasn't for Daniel, then Israel wouldn't have got out of Babylon. If it's not for the people who pray, then nothing will change in this land. And if we're tired of the nonsense that's going on in churches and the fluffy, weak-backed evangelifish Christians that we're coming out with these days, if we're tired of that, we need to get on our knees and we need to do some time and we need to do some business with God. Because if we're going to see this nation change for Jesus, it will only start when the people start to pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.